Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, bonus episode number 10. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey Nick, how's it going? Hey John, I'm excited. Bonus episodes, you just never know what we're going to do. I like it. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip, John. Great. Hey, so um, this is a bonus episode because we were all set to release uh, something that we recorded a little bit earlier on, an interview, um, which we will release uh, later on in about a week. And uh, it just seemed wrong to not talk about the kind of upheaval um, that the U.S. is going through. So we wanted to take an episode about having, um, you know, this the stuff going on, uh, COVID, uh, um you know, protests in the streets and, and talk about that. So um, I think that really what we wanted to do was kind of frame it as how do you support colleagues of color in a situation like this? You know, it's not all the time that like there's protests and, you know, people being killed by police, but, you know, at the same time, you know, maybe this underlines, um, you know, a situation where maybe we need to be a little bit more uh, understanding of the struggles that our colleagues of color are going through. I mean, I I don't think I've said this explicitly on the podcast before, but, you know, I'm of African-American descent, you know, and uh, like I'm, my dad was black and my mother is Japanese. So I, I feel like I represent, you know, the two of the, uh, the ethnicities in the past that America has wronged, right? <laughs> Bringing African American, uh, African slaves over. And then, you know, the Japanese population was the, uh, one of the last populations that we, you know, um, lawfully removed, uh, freedom and property from, uh, during world war two. So, um, I, you know, in, in that context, I think we wanted to, to bring you an, an episode where we had and maybe modeled a diff difficult conversation, um, you know, how to support your colleagues, um, regardless of their ethnicity, you know, um, but, you know, maybe very specifically if they are of African descent and, you know, might or might not be having problems. Um, so in that spirit, I think we wanted to cover a couple things, you know, a quick a conversation about do's and don'ts when it comes to, you know, having difficult conversations with African-American colleagues about, you know, current problems and maybe problems in general. Um, and then, uh, you know, a couple difficult things to talk about when it comes to context, you know, maybe uh, things that you might or might not be aware of that your colleagues might be thinking about in the context that they live in when they live in America. Um, and if you, unless you are, you know, from that background, maybe these things don't necessarily hit you the same way. Um, and maybe you just, you know, aren't aware of them. So, you know, that's worth addressing as well. Um, 
a couple things that you know I've used as a coping mechanism. Uh, my main coping mechanism is, um, you know, pointed sarcasm and intellectualization of things. Right. So um, <laughs> there's a couple uh, things that I heard in the past uh, past week or so. Um, a Malcolm Gladwell uh, special podcast episode that I thought was really interesting, and then another one. Um, about uh, police training that I thought would be pretty interesting to to drop in. So I think with that kind of as the framework, um, if that sounds good to you, Nick, maybe we can dive right into it. Yeah, and if I may, John, I think that from my perspective, you know, I'm a Caucasian dude. So as we talked about before the show, it's hard for me to start up a conversation about this stuff with someone like yourself because what I don't want to do is I don't want to offend you or anyone else by just bringing it up. You know, I don't want to be the guy that picks the scab. So a lot of this is, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable for both of us, but I think it's going to make us better and hopefully it makes our listeners better. Yeah. I think that maybe that leads to like the first like important point of context um, for having relationships with your colleagues, right? Which is, you know, in order to do the work of actually supporting people, you need to kind of invest in a relationship ahead of time. So I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about off mic was, you know, both of us have lost a parent um, in the past uh, couple of years. Um, but we were able to actually have difficult conversations after that, you know, um, you know, kind of sudden losses, you know, one-on-one and, but it was really predicated on us having that like relationship ahead of time, right. And investing in that relationship. And that was it, you know, we both knew like, it's difficult, but Hey, you know, we're here for each other and, you know, we've invested in that relationship kind of, you know, medium to long-term. So it wasn't just out of the blue, right. It wasn't just like, hey, we've met a couple of times and now I just want to let you know that if you want to talk to me about losing your parent, like, I'm here. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) This is a strange conversation. (laughs) Sure. And I think that sometimes we forget when we're so busy at work that the person who comes to work, they have to do a particular job. But when they come to work, they bring a whole unique perspective based on their environment that they've grown up in, the people they've been around and interacted with, the things that have happened to them, good and bad. So all that comes with a person into the workplace and it affects, you know, how they behave, what they're struggling with and uh, maybe some some things we need to be more cognizant of as we interact with those folks. Kind of kind of like you said with the with the parent that's passed, you know, you want to show empathy, but you don't want that person to feel like you're treating them different because of that. Or that's my thought anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you want to, you know, a have a have invested in that relationship and then B like give like that permission to say, and I hope you do look upon me as a, as a resource. And, you know, if not, that's fine. You know, I don't need to be here. Like that's, that's not what's important to me. What's important to me is that you have support. And if I can help with that, then I'm happy to. Right. So that, that kind of is the way I think that we want to model that. Right. So, so let's start with the don'ts. Um, I think 
a brief way to talk about this is like what you don't want to do is provide is add to the burden, right? So you shouldn't ask for explanations of things that you don't understand. Um, if you don't understand why peaceful protests turn violent, like maybe your African-American colleagues aren't the ones that you should ask. Maybe there's research that you can do um, independently of them and not force them to contend with the you know situation as it is, but then also have to explain you know a bunch of context to you. Hopefully I can you know later on, explain some of that context and, and, and that'll be useful. Um, but if you're asking them to do additional emotional work, you know, and that's the second, second point, if you ask them to support you and your stress, like that, that's also another don't, right? Like, I'm so upset, Nick, like about all these things that I've been seeing and, and Nick, I just, you know, I, I hope like, I assume that you feel bad just as, as I do. And man, like, what can we do? Like that you're asking that person, to support you in your time of stress instead of offering your support and, and, you know, not offload your emotional stress onto that person to deal with on top of whatever they may or may not be dealing with. So I think that's another don't. Sure. And it's okay. If you have emotional stress, you probably should, right? No matter who you are over the things that are happening. And uh, like John said, you don't want to put that on someone else. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I think the final don't is don't wait to be an ally, right? So don't wait for that person to ask you for support in order to show that you're an ally. And what I mean by that is not like ride in and be like a white knight for, for people. I just think that like, you know, racism, structural racism and implicit racism and, and bias exist in unconscious bias exists, you know, everywhere. We all have unconscious biases and, you know, sometimes we have conscious biases, right? And, and when someone unconsciously or consciously exposes that to you, like, I think it's important to call that person out, you know, that's part of being an ally, right? So somebody, you know, says something that, you know, implicitly puts something on, you know, people of other races or other genders, like, you know, it's important to immediately call that out and say, Hey, maybe you're joking. You know, I, I assume you are, but you know, that doesn't feel okay to me. So maybe if we're joking, we can joke about something else <laughs> or, um, you know, that that's kind of like my deflection, you know, uh, and hopefully not exactly the script that I use because that felt a little bit awkward to say, but it, you know, it doesn't matter. Like the, the person who's made it awkward is the person who's exposed their bias. Um, and you are the one who has to contend with it. Right. So again, the person who made it awkward is the other person, not you. Right. And it may feel awkward to, to say something to that person, but you know, it's kind of like you're, you're seeing someone be bullied and not really doing anything about it because you didn't say something. Right. I think the, analogy that I use for myself is, um, if someone is making a comment about women in technology, you know, as like a negative or something, you know, or I don't even know how somebody would phrase that to me, but like, you know, I've been pretty vigilant about being ready to say, you know, 
no, I don't understand. Like, no, like I have a lot of female colleagues that are amazing and, you know, outstanding. So I don't know what it is that you mean, or, you, you know, like whatever response it would be to whatever they say, um, you know, and just leave it at that. Like, maybe you'll have to explain what it is that you mean. <laughs> and again, the other person has made it awkward. You are you know, living in the awkwardness that they have created. <laughs> so, um, uh, like that, you know, what can you do except to, to, you know, softly confront that, um, or strongly, or, you know, if it keeps on happening, you know, you have to escalate to, you know, whatever appropriate levels, you know, that happens to be, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, I think this kind of plays into the crucial conversations mentality, they talk about mm. creating safety in the conversations. Once something like that happens, it's not really safe for everybody involved, right? Because we've we've tossed something out there that is going we are pretty sure has offended someone, even if mm -hmm. they haven't said something about it. So we can help provide the safety by saying, Hey, that's not okay. You may not say right. it exactly like that, but mm -hmm. you can say something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have to be ready to, to receive that critique too. If we have an unconscious bias and somebody calls us on it, we have to be willing to, to sit with it and say, Hmm, yeah, I'm really going to have to examine that. And I appreciate the feedback, right? I, I appreciate the, uh, the constructive feedback and, you know, exposure. Like maybe I have been joking about that and I shouldn't be, you know, um, uh, and, and then be willing to actually, you know, sit and do self-reflection, which is by the way, very difficult, very difficult to say, maybe I've been wrong about this all along. Um, but important for growth. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk about a couple do's, right? Um, do offer support. That's okay. Um, and it can be awkward, right? But, but that's okay too. And it can be difficult to do and that's okay. Um, you know, so if it's somebody that you work with and you have, you know, however cordial relationship, um, I think it's, it's worth saying, Hey, um, this, this message, by the way, doesn't require a response. Um, I just want you to know that, um, in these times, you know, with everything going on, I want you to know that I'm here as a point of support for you. So if you ever need to, you know, need my support or a person to talk to, I'm here, but it is absolutely unnecessary for you to respond to this, you know, in an email or text or, or whatever, or even in a conversation, Hey, we don't need to continue to have this conversation. I just want you to know that with everything going on, if you need somebody to talk to, I'm here for you. That being said, we don't need to talk about it anymore right now. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, along a similar vein, offer allyship, you know, um, and whatever ability or form that you have to be an ally. Like most uh, large organizations have um, employee resource groups, and they generally have like a, a specific way for you to engage with that um, employee resource group as an ally. You know, um, usually they're not exclusive. I think it's actually maybe even illegal for them to be exclusive, right? Um, to whatever, um, group that they, um, you know, represent. Um, but 
you know, in order to make it a safe space for, you know, that group, figure out how it is that, you know, they engage with allies and, and, and go to learn, right? If you are engaging with a group and you want to be an ally, you know, you have to, you have to learn and be willing to do the work to become an ally. So. One thing I wanted to ask John is Mm -hmm. when I think about these do's and don'ts, I think they're fantastic, but I'm wondering about the manager employee relationship. You know, mm. if if one of them in this case is on the side of someone of color, right, right now, mm-hmm. and and the other is not, is it more challenging to have this kind of conversation, or more dicey to bring it up if you're if you're the manager or if you're the employee? What do you think? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying because if you are in a peer relationship, then there's no power dynamic. All right, there's no implicit role power dynamic. Um, you know, maybe there's a seniority mismatch, you know, even if you're you have the same title or whatever, but you know, more explicitly, you know, one person doesn't have like hiring or firing decision over the other. When you're a manager, I think, you know, implicit in being a manager is that you have to build rapport with your reports, you know, re- to be able to handle these issues regardless of what they are. If they happen to be issues about race, if they have to be issues about gender, you know, ethnicity, age, um, sexuality, mental health status, all of those things, you have to create a safe space for your report to come talk to you about it. I mean, that is like critically important as part of being a manager. So, you know, I would say, you know, parental status. That's another one, you know, that is, um, often missed. That can be hugely stressful. Um, I think as all of us have, uh, come to figure out during, uh, the age of COVID, um, you know, I think that that one was probably hidden from some of us until, um, we were on video calls with everybody in their homes, but, um, yeah, not to get hung up on that, but you know, that it's so, Yes, it is more difficult, but I also think that, you know, as a manager, the manager has more training to engage with uh, reports about and be a source of support on every difficult topic, right? So if the manager in general is not a a source of support um, for all these other things, like if you're having problems with work, you know, don't come to me, like, you know, because I'm not going to support you. I'm going to hold you accountable. Like if that's the kind of manager you are, then, then you have a problem. You're starting from behind and you have to make up all that ground for everything because you, it can't be that your social support for this one thing, but for everything else, you're just a point of accountability. You have to be, you know, you ha- I mean, obviously you have to be a point of accountability, but you have to be a, a source of support as well. Right. And if you're not doing that, then, you know, nothing else is, you almost can't catch up, right? So sure. uh, hopefully as a manager, you're doing that, that work. <laughs> that kind of reminds me, and hopefully this isn't reaching too much, but it reminds me of something I read in uh, Fierce Conversations recently. Mm-hmm. And the lady who wrote it, I forget her name already, she told a story about a board meeting or some kind of meeting where this lady was giving a presentation and she noticed that one of her employees rolled his eyes, yawned, seemed very disengaged. And she kind of made the assumption that he was doing this because he didn't think the speaker was competent or didn't like her ideas. 
And she was proven very wrong when she interrogated reality because he had had a rough night. His kids were up late. He was just exhausted out on his feet. He thought this lady had great ideas, didn't realize that he may have offended her. So mm-hmm. the, the takeaway there was seek to understand what reality is from everyone's perspective. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the, the, the things that we think is that if we have any skills at reading body language, we assume that we're masters of it. Right. Uh, and body language is very, very easy to misread. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Like that fake smile on your face right now, John, (laughs) (laughs) you're reading it so wrong. Yeah. So wrong. I don't think I am. It's not, it's not the coffee either. (laughs) Yeah, if you'd uh, if you'd had a uh, regular coffee instead of decaf, you would you'd be able to understand what it is that I'm thinking right now. Yeah, shame on me. <laughs> That'll teach you to drink cold brew. Uh huh. It was the one time, Nick. It was the one time. I gotta tell you, it was delicious. You're missing out. Hashtag soapbox. <laughs> okay. Um. So back on topic. Um. The next section, you know, it's difficult for me to dive into context um, uh, that maybe your African-American colleagues um, are living in that that you don't have because it's difficult to articulate a whole bunch of things um, without um, coming off as preachy. And that is not my goal and or accusatory. Like, that's not my goal either. Um what I'm trying to do is give you context into uh, the thinking uh, that an African-American colleague might be having. I'm not saying this is in everybody's mind, um, you know, about history and, and how they live in, in the America that they live in, which might be a slightly different America than you live in. Um, and so, again, I hope that it doesn't come off as accusatory and doesn't come off as preachy. Hopefully it's just informational. Um, I'm also trying to uh, give resources um, in the the form of links and uh, titles of books and, and things like that. If you, if you want to uh, dive further in, and I think if one of the things that you want to do is be an ally, then, then, you know, maybe I, the, you shouldn't, like go and read every single book that I'm, I'm rattling off here, maybe just investigate like what they're about or, you know, read a summary, you know, like, and then, you know, kind of pursue the things as they come up and educate yourself. Um, cause I, I certainly haven't read every single book I'm about to rattle off here. Um, and hopefully I'm not going to just rattle off a bunch of books either. That's but he does have a lot of good book recommendations for any <laughs> occasion. Hey, you sign up for Nerd Journey in your feed, like you're going to get book recommendations. For sure. <laughs> All right. Um, so contextually, right? So people are frustrated. Like I, I don't think you know. I need to. I need to say that maybe. Like you know, if you're an African American and you witnessed, like you know, like hopefully all of us in America, like have watched this video of somebody being killed by a police officer. You know, slowly crushed, you know, or strangled or asphyxiated to death over the course of, you know, eight or nine minutes. Like it's really difficult to watch. Um, and it's really frustrating and it's outrageous, but I think that maybe if you're 
I'm African American. Like, this is like the reality that we kind of live with every day. Um, you know, I'm a black man, and like my, you know, the my reality is like, you know, my my father sat down and had the talk with me. We call it actually capital T the talk, which is this is how you need to act around police officers in order to not get killed. Right. But, you know, now we've kind of found out like you can act that way and you still might end up dead. Um, and, uh, you know, the context of this is, you know, currently um, this is something that's, that's already happened. Right. Um, it's happened already, even in Minneapolis, right. Five years ago, I think it was uh, Philando Castile was uh, shot in his car um, during a police stop. And I think what happened back then was he had a concealed carry permit. Um, one of the things that happens when you are stopped by a police officers that you have to inform them um, that you have a concealed carry permit and that you are currently carrying. It's kind of part of the responsibility of having that concealed carry permit, which is what happened. And then the police officer just drew and shot him. And, uh, I think the only reason that we kind of know about it is that his uh, partner like recorded what happened afterwards, like on her phone. She pulled out her phone, started recording, and, and contemporaneously say said exactly what happened. You know, this police officer start, stopped us. You know, Lando like said, "This is you know I'm carrying. I have a, a legitimate concealed carry," and then he just shot him. Just shot him. And, you know, it's upsetting, but that happened five years ago. And, um, you know, that was around the same time that I think Michael Brown got uh, uh, killed in Ferguson. And, uh, you know, it, I think it's, it's something that's happening all the time. Like, it hasn't stopped happening. Um, so it's outrageous, but it's also, like, a fatigue that you end up having. Like, oh, this is happening again, and people outraged again. And we even have protests again you know, and even unrest in the streets again, which happened five years ago. Um, but nothing like there's the cynical part of one's brain is like, nothing's going to change again. What, why it, somebody pointed out to me today, actually, the one thing that's different right now is that maybe there's a captive audience, right? Maybe we're mostly isolated because of COVID-19. So we can't, um, really do much else. A lot of things are shut down. So, you know, part of that context is also COVID-19, right? Um, it came and it kind of interrupted this like economic recovery, which like at the tail end of the economic recovery was starting to actually help African-American communities. They were, you know, the last to participate in the economic recovery after 2007, 2008. Um, and then, you know, immediately hit hit hard. And then, you know, COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting black communities. Um, you know, and part of the reason why that is, is that, you know, there's the, you know, African-Americans who do still have a job, like tend to have service jobs and they tend to be tagged as essential, but at the same time, you know, a large percentage of those don't actually have paid time off, paid sick leave and, uh, or, and or health coverage. Right. So, you know, that's, that's frustrating. Additional context. Um, I think historically, uh, the prison system, you know, what's always in our minds is like, you know, 
like the uh you know african americans are disproportionately you know um more likely to go to jail um or to prison and uh and it's a prison system that's run largely for profit um and uh there's entrenched um interests who want to keep it that way and keep sentencing the way it is so that it's punitive and people go to prison rather than be re rehabilitated um, or even have fair sentencing. Um, and so I have some resources that people can maybe check out. Um, there's a Netflix documentary actually called 13th, and that's a reference to the 13th Amendment. Um, right now, you don't even need to be a Netflix subscriber to uh, watch the documentary. I think it's on YouTube um, completely for free. Um, and it's not a pirated version. It's actually put on YouTube by Netflix and made available for free. So um, something that we'll, um, we'll, we'll have a link for that in the show notes. There's also a really good book called The New Jim Crow, which is about this. And um, it's, you know, obviously a reference to, you know, the segregated South and how, you know, as segregation was undone, um, the criminalization of uh, being alive while black was kind of uh, uh, put into law. So um, if, if that's something that you are unaware of or you feel the need to investigate, then feel moved to investigate, then those are two resources to maybe check out. Um, Nick, again, I want you to kind of interrupt me um, and ask hard questions. Um, if, if those pop into your mind, like, I don't want to just, uh, I, I don't want to rattle off a bunch of stuff and feel preachy at the same time. So I, I did not realize, uh, the fact that, that COVID-19 disproportionately affected black communities. That was news to me. Hmm. Um, you know, yeah. some of, some of this stuff I, I did not know about, you know, whether mm -hmm. that's good or bad. I just didn't know. It just is right. Yeah. Yeah. So this, the stat on that comes from the CDC, by the way, um, and we'll include uh, the source for that in the show notes. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is um, the problem with uh, the how we talk about um, violence and looting as being the problem. Um, you know, so a lot of news coverage of uh, nonviolent protests. We'll talk about nonviolent protests, which were then, you know, shattered by violence and looting. Um, that that's a real like problematic um, construction of how we think about uh, protest in this country. Um, protest in this country has always, even if it was nonviolent, almost always been opposed. So, you know. We now think about in our retrospect, retrospective view of history, we kind of view the nonviolent protest um, of Martin Luther King Jr. and his contemporaries as being heroic. At the time, it was not welcomed. It was criminalized and people went to jail for it, you know, over and over and over again. And people were beaten and put in harm's way, like put in the hospital over and over and over again um, based on that on that protest, you know, nonviolent protest is not welcomed. Um, so 
I feel like when, and, and maybe this isn't everybody, but you know, I think my eyes have been open to this, this construction is like, if only these protests were nonviolent, I think the most recent example of nonviolent protests we have was Colin Kaepernick and, and some other NFL, um, players who would kneel during the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, sorry, not the Pledge of Allegiance, the um, National Anthem. And, you know, the express purpose of that was um, silent, respectful protest over police brutality, right? And contemporaneously, there was huge opposition to it. And there probably still is. In fact, I think um, it was Drew Brees, the NFL quarterback, um, was recently asked about it. And he said, like, I'll never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag, like still today, you know, in, in light of, I think in the context of being asked about, you know, nonviolent protest to police brutality, like the immediate construct of kneeling during the game was disrespect for the flag and disrespect for the military. Um, but that, you know, that construct is, is really strange, right? Um, it, it's almost, it almost feels like an intentional misunderstanding of what's going on. So if the person tells you what it is that they're protesting and why they're doing it, it feels strange to then say, oh, but it's disrespectful to this other thing that's completely unrelated. And it's, it's not acceptable. You know, why don't you just find some other place in time. So again, I think just the, the, the reason that I'm talking about this is, is this idea that like, Oh, if only protests were nonviolent, they would be welcome. I, I think that's a fallacy. Right. And I think that Drew Brees like faced some backlash and, you know, responded well. Like I think he immediately released some statements saying, you know, he had learned a lot and spoke to people and, you know, had, had his mind changed, you know, and, and spoke out on it. Like the cynical part of my mind says like, he has like a really good crisis PR person. I have no idea. I don't know the per person, right. I don't know what's going on in his heart, but I do know like what came out like immediately. And I, I suspect that a lot of other people feel that way, right? It's like, Oh, if you're kneeling during the national anthem, that has something to do with the military and the flag. Like, and that is more important, like showing respect for the military and the flag is more important than whatever it is that you have to say. What is it that you're saying again? Oh, that's right. People being killed in the street by the police. I mean, as important as that might be, like kneeling is not the right way to talk about that maybe, for some reason. Maybe, John, is it more that we are quicker to be offended with what we think they mean instead of asking what they actually meant. Mm, that's a, that's difficult for me to accept, right? Because until, I don't know, 48 hours ago, Drew Brees still considered kneeling during the national anthem to be about disrespecting the flag and the military. Like, like, and how does somebody come to that opinion? Um, mm. Like, I mean, after five years, 
how how like it's intentional how is it non-intentional i don't know um is it is it just like defensively believing that so one doesn't have to actually face the issue that the person is protesting i mean i, I suppose that's possible like you know the thing that you're protesting is so painful that i'd rather not address it at all and deflect it by this other defensive means that's possible or okay or or just like core racism right like i i don't like seeing african americans with opinions that's that's another possibility um so i don't know Could be. pick your poison you know i don't know that you know you know some of those constructs are worse than others there's there's no getting around that um but and and i don't pretend to uh know every construct or every way that somebody can come to that conclusion. But, um, you know, like, uh, Drew Brees said that he had, you know, grandfathers that served in the military. And so every, every, um, form of protest during a national anthem, like made him immediately think of that. And to the point, I think what he was saying was, to the point where he couldn't listen to what Colin Kaepernick was saying. Like it just overrode everything. Mm. I mean that, I guess that's possible. Again, I don't know the, I don't know the man. I don't know his heart. Well, but that, I think what I was speaking to is more the like people in general mm-hmm. is the problem as a generalization of the problem more that we, tend to act on what offended us so fast that we didn't actually stop to see if uh, see what the intentions were behind the action that we made that we got offended about. Does that make sense? Hmm. I, I suppose that's possible. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know how that survives years. I, I don't know. Yeah. But then, you know, if, we react a certain way and we express it a certain way, then it's difficult to back off from that. Right. Cause then at that point you're admitting that you were wrong about it, which is very, very difficult to do sure. unless you're kind of in a, in a space where you're saying where you're, where you have practice at that of saying, Oh, I had this view. Um, it was based on misunderstandings and mistaken facts. And now I'm going to change that view. And most of us aren't actually comfortable with that. Like when we're faced with like facts, we, retrench right like we get more entrenched in in our opinion like because we'd rather not change sure you know it's we, very we haven't motivated the elephant even though we've directed the writer right? <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly um so just on this you know topic of police brutality i think there's like a very difficult montage to watch of uh, police brutality at protests against police brutality um, in the last uh, week. And we'll put the link up to it. It's, it's in a embedded in a show called um, some more news, I think. Um, And uh, which I found very helpful. It was very, it was a long episode, but you know, we'll include the, direct link to the four or five minutes of video, um, which was like, unfortunately, you know, like I said, very difficult to watch and, and 
part of it that was really frustrating was that there was like three or four different videos of police brutality playing all at the same time for four minutes, five minutes, like kind of one after the other, after the other, after the other, like three or four at a time, which is, you know, made me think that like, there's so much of it going on that, you know, you could put an hour video montage of police brutality, you know, in the past week that of, you know, targeted at peaceful protesters. I think that's like another part of the, the difficult, um, going back to the construct of like, you know, peaceful protest is okay, but you know, violence and, and looting is not, I, I think that there's actually very little violent protest that's going on. I, I don't know that, that I haven't seen much. I, it depends, I, I suppose, on how you, uh, define violence, but you know, certainly violence against things or property, but I actually haven't seen like protesters surrounding somebody and beating them. Um, I've seen a lot of video of police doing that. So when you talk about violent protest or, or, or rioting, you know, if, if by definition police can't riot, then I suppose like I haven't seen any violent rioting, but it seems like there's a lot of police on citizen violence going on. And so, you know, violent protests, there are protests and then violence being visited upon the protesters by police and law enforcement. And like, that's a problem. Um, hopefully for everybody. Um, Another construct that is problematic is the phrase, um, when the looting starts, a shooting starts. Um, I think the president of the United States said that, um, there's a, we'll include a link to the origin of that phrase, which was in the segregation of South. Um, and it was stated by a, um, racist police chief as instructions for his officers. If there are looters, then you should shoot them right was a very clear message so when the president of the united states says that it 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 feels like a dog whistle right it feels like a clear signal that you know a call to violence of you know executing people who are you know protesting in the streets um that is like the penalty for um destruction of properties should be death, which feels strange, uh, without due process of law. That feels strange in America. Um, I think the statement that he made afterwards was, oh, I didn't know the history of that statement. And that's not what I meant. And I, I think my response is like, I, I don't know that that's better. I, I don't know that I believe it. And I don't know that it's better. So, um, it just sounded snappy. Uh, well, whatever. Um, I think, you know, the next part of that is, um, you know, additional statements by the president saying that, you know, essentially threatening martial law, um, for, for protesting in the street. Um, so sending in the military and, and controlling, 
you know, American citizens who are exercising their freedom of speech and controlling them with the U.S. military. Um, that that feels weird. Um, that feels very dangerous. Um, and hopefully, you know, all Americans feel that that's dangerous. Um, I think a Senator Tom Cotton, like, wrote an op-ed saying that that should happen, that he tweeted out that, you know, all these various um, calling out different, like, military units by name and saying that um, they should be sent in to the cities and that no quarter should be given, which means that they should kill people, right? That's what no quarter means. Like, they're not allowed to give up. Like, you are just killed. So that feels weird, um, you know, by a senator, sitting senator of the United States saying that U.S. citizens should be executed in the street for protesting. It just, it's this is horrible, horrible context, and it's really uncomfortable to talk about. But, um, you know, again, that's the context of where we're living right now. Um, I don't think that this is like a partisan thing. Like, I think I rattled off a couple of things by, you know, the sitting president and sitting senator who happened to be Republicans. Like, this this isn't like a, a partisan thing. Like, you know, the mayors of um, Los Angeles and New York, the two largest cities in the country, you know, both got up and supported their police who are exercising brutal tactics in the streets. Like, that's not right. That's not good. Um, the Democratic nominee for president, um, Joe Biden, was like one of the main supporters of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which is like a, the, the act which um, said, like, if you possess like uh, five grams of crack cocaine, you get an automatic mandatory minimum of five five years in jail, but in order to go to jail for possessing powdered cocaine, you have to possess 500 grams, right? It's like the, like chemically identical, but 500 to five, hundred to one ratio. And of course, like the population that was, you know, uh, affected by crack cocaine was majority black and the population that was using powder cocaine was majority white. So, you know, this is, this is, you know, a critique that, that crosses party lines. Um, that's the context that, you know, your colleagues might or might not be, um, living with. Yeah. And I think that everybody gets a dose of reality going on around them. They may or may not be, they may or may not choose to accept what's happening and, and want to talk about it, I guess. Or face it. Or face it. Yeah. Right. And especially if you're someone who doesn't want to face it, you're probably not going to bring it up with somebody else. I would guess. Right. Yeah. And that makes it harder. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's it's very easy to avoid as a human being, right? Like we're masters at avoiding discomfort. <laughs> Compartmentalize, right? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, but it catches up to you. So, um, and, and hopefully what I'm doing is I'm, you know, these are like raw topics and very difficult to talk about. And like I said, it's 
difficult to, to give all this context without sounding preachy and, and accusatory. Like I don't, I don't want to sound like that. What I'm trying to do is like be informational. Um, so rather than putting the burden on somebody that you know um, to, to give you all this information and maybe give you the context of thinking about it this way, um, you know, I can take that on in a one-to-many fashion and say, hey, maybe you could investigate these things um, so that you have some of that context. And um, if you if you want to engage in a, in a healthy, like constructive debate about the factual basis for any of these things, like please feel free to engage with somebody else, not me. Like, uh, <laughs> don't slip into my DMs and say you you know, hey, you're wrong about this one thing. Like that may or may not be true. <laughs> uh, so I think moving on from context a little bit onto like the, the, the resources that have helped me also a little bit more um, to intellectualize some of the things and understand some of the feelings that I've had. Um, there was a, I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell, um, who's an author that we've mentioned before um, has a podcast series called revisionist history. Um, and he kind of hijacked his own feed to have um a reading from a chapter of his book, David and Goliath. And, you know, that book, the, the, the theme is exposing why the assumptions that we have about, you know, the underdog, you know, might be, um, might be wrong. But this, ver this specific chapter talked about um, the British Army's occupation of Northern Ireland, which started in the late 60s. And um, I think there was a, a new... Um, commander that was sent there, you know, very, um, knowledgeable about use of force and occupation. I think that was like a British specialty for a long period of time, you know, lots of colonies. Um, and so, you know, basically the philosophy, the, the philosophy on use of force was, you know, in order to stop like, um, protests in the street, we'll just make it very expensive to be a protester. And, you know, the way to make that very expensive is, is police violence, uh, and uh, mass incarceration. And, you know, if we just make it really expensive, then people won't do it. And and that actually was the opposite of what happened. Um, it promoted more of it and it radicalized the people who, the population that were um, subjected to it. Um, but I think it's, you know, if you're not a student of history, um, uh, it's, you know, it, it's counterintuitive maybe that, you know, well, it seems logical that if you just do things this way, if you just have overwhelming force, like people will like, you know, just go away. Like, I think that, you know, there's very, um, there's very specific situations, right? Like certainly in like more, um, fascist, like countries where, you know, you can like, you have like complete control, then, and like an active secret police, then, then maybe you can just, you know, I don't know, kill everybody, I, you know? Oh, I mean, what the Chinese got away with it in Tiananmen Square, right? So um, they're able to kind of suppress history and, and do away with all the, the protests there. Um, well, okay, so I have this quote here that is uncomfortable to read, but I will read it anyway. And that is, um, <laughs> Here's the quote. When the students poured into Tiananmen Square, the Chinese government almost blew it. 
Then they were vicious, they were horrible, they put it down with strength. That shows you the power of strength. And that quote was from Donald Trump in a Playboy interview in 1990. So I think that's what Donald Trump was talking about when, or had on his mind, or, you know, is in his heart when he talks about, you know, responding to, to protest. It was like, you dominate the way the Chinese government did. Um, that's a show of strength. Um, I don't know. I don't know about you. Like that's not acceptable to me. Um, and that's not like really a political position. That's like a position of me as an American. Um, so, you know, that's yet more context, um, you know, backing up into context. I hadn't seen that quote before today, honestly. Not, not a reader of Playboy, are you? No, I am not. Okay. Maybe that's why you missed it. I guess. Uh, you know, just to, to wrap that up, I think, you know, that whole discussion, it's, it's, it's a great episode to listen to because it removes it from the American context and puts it into the British historical context. And it removes the racial context and adds in like a ethnic and, and um, religious, but also like political context, right? It's, you know, part of it, you know, the, well, you know what, I'll just put a link into the, the troubles um, in Ireland. So you can read all about the, you know, Protestant Catholic, you know, uh, single country versus, uh, you know, British rule context there. But, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier to understand and maybe think about use of force uh, against the population um, of your own citizens um, when it's not America, and then maybe learn the lessons that history teaches us, um, again, outside of the American context. Um, really, really interesting listen, and it really helped me to contextualize those things. Like, oh, this is why people think that. It's not just, you know, the American leadership that thinks that. It's, you know, people throughout history, and here's, you know, why that can go wrong, right? And then I think kind of the final point here, um, again, it was help. It helped me to understand context. Um, so maybe all of this is going back to context, but really this was my coping, uh, you know, the podcast that helped me cope a little bit. Um, the podcast is called behind the bastards. Um, it's done by a guy named Robert Evans, who is a freelance, uh, journalist, uh, who typically goes into like war zones, um, and does uh, journalism there. But, um, he has this podcast, which is kind of talking about like the worst people in history and giving like more contextual information about them, stuff that we didn't know. Um, and maybe exposing some of the, the worst people in history that we didn't know about. So he uh, did an episode called the man who teaches our cops to kill. And uh, the description is to discuss um this guy named David Grossman, who's the director of the Killology Research Group. Um, I'll just read a little bit more from the description. More than 100 police departments and thousands of police officers have taken Grossman's course over more than 20 years. Um, and they kind of dive into that course. A lot of it is about teaching people to kill more quickly, um, to recontextualize use of force as something that should be gone to earlier rather than later and to teach uh, police officers to fear their environment. Um, 
coincidentally, you know, being uh, afraid for your life is typically a a legitimate um, a legitimizer for use of lethal force for a police officer. So, you know, it's not as simple as just saying, "Oh, I, I was afraid for my life," and then you can kill whoever you want. But if you um, can find other police officers, you know, in and uh, testify that yes, like as a police officer, you know, in that situation, it would be completely reasonable to be afraid for your life. Then you know, use of force is is generally acceptable. Like not not that they were actually in danger of their life was in danger, just that they it was legitimate to feel um, fear for their life. And if they're taught by this course to be afraid more often then implicitly they're being taught to kill more often, right? And actually that is an explicit goal of the course, to kill like earlier, use lethal force faster. Um, we talked about Philando Castile in uh, Minneapolis who was killed um, uh, five years ago. Like I think that, that the police officer who had shot him had uh, recently gone through this course. Um, and it certainly, I think, negatively affected like how much you know people use the course but it didn't certainly didn't go away um and it's you know there's other um trainings that are out there that were influenced by this course and uh it, i think uh okay we'll put another link um like there is a the minneapolis like the mayor of minneapolis actually banned this training from being used by the minneapolis pd um but the police union said that um that it was so important to their officers that the police union was going to pay for the membership to continue taking it which is a, a really weird position to be in like where the police union is going to override the training directives of the uh the police department leadership um and i think it, it kind of uh, exposed something which was that sometimes the the police union is is way more important to the culture of the police department um, than than the leadership, the elected leadership and the civilian oversight of the department. Um, which, I don't know, it made me think one of the things that I need to do um, is as an action is to let my elected officials know that, you know, endorsement by the police union is not, is not going to be something that I'm looking for in, in an elected official. Like, I'm not necessarily going to consider that a negative but it's certainly not going to, it's not like a default positive, right? It doesn't and tip the scales for you. No, no, not anymore. Not if, if the, you know, I, I don't know that the, I think, you know, unions are great, right? And I support unions, but I think, you know, again, the unions are there to look out for the, the membership. And sometimes in police departments, the culture can be looking out for the membership at the expense of the people who are being policed, the citizenry, right? So protecting people um, by not testifying if you saw something that was done wrong, you know, and then, and, and ostracizing people if they do testify, right? If you saw your fellow police officer do something wrong and you testify against them, you know, sometimes the, the culture of the police force is like, well, you're no longer, you know, welcome here and you might not be supported, you know, on the field because you didn't support your, your fellow officers. I, it's, you know, maybe that, that 
attitude. I assume that exists because it's been shaped by television or something, but, um, you know, you, you kind of see this like thin blue line thing, like, uh, that, that's a real thing. You can, you can look that up and, you know, um, I, yeah. So it just makes me think that like the police union is not necessarily out for my best interest as a citizen. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's there for the police officers, not, not for the citizenry. Not that those things come into conflict all the time, but they can, they, they certainly can. Right. I was going to say, if you go back and watch that five minutes of police brutality, then maybe that will bring to mind, like those two things can come into direct conflict. Sure. So just um, as a last little piece of um, explanation, there's something that's come out, um, a movement called the defund the police. Um, And I wanted to, you know, do like a, a minor explainer about it. I'm not an expert at, at the movement, um, but I read and listened to it a little bit and I wanted to, to talk about it. Like, I, I don't know that it is the right thing to do. Like it, like the gut reaction of people is like, well, if we don't have police, then, then what would we do? Like, how would we be safe? You know, who, who would I call if like somebody's trying to break into my house? And, um, I think contextually, I think that's what a lot of African-American communities live with every day. Like there's, there's a distrust of the police, you know, the response times to those neighborhoods are so low and so long that it seems almost useless to call the police. Um, so they don't look upon, you know, calling the police as, as a source of safety. Right. And again, if you are living in fear of the police and you see, you know, constant, you know, people that look like you being killed by police officers, you know, then, you know, maybe you have a legitimate reason to not call them. Right. So, so that is the world that many people live in today. Um, so it is kind of a call to like, maybe start over. What are the functions that the police are serving? How do we serve those functions outside of the organization that we currently call the police? Right. Um, should there be detectives investigating, you know, violent crimes and murders and, and white collar crime? Yes. You know, probably, you know, is it inside the context of what we currently call the police department? You know, people who believe in this movement don't think so. They think that those functions can be done, you know, in a separate organization. Um, you know, we currently have, we call out the police, you know, to deal with homeless people you know, instead of funding programs to deal with homelessness. So maybe instead of funding the police to handle a homeless issue, we should fund fund social services to handle that issue. Um, I think that's, you know, kind of the the discussion in a nutshell, and we can um, link to some additional resources. Again, it's not necessarily something that I'm advocating, um, but hopefully you can understand if you know, the, the call is for police reform. Like imagine that you're a resident, a black resident of Minneapolis, and you've seen this happen five years ago, you know, police kill somebody, you know, there's protests in the streets, calls for reform, a reform process. And then five years later, it all happens again. Um, you know, calls for reform 
start to fall on deaf ears, like, well, that doesn't work. And, you know, like, how do we get to 2020? And then we need to start with like, well, why don't we just reform the police force? Like that starts to, and I think, you know, has like fallen on deaf ears for a while. Like, okay, well, I don't know what you think reform is and I don't know what, you know, what form that's going to take, but, you know, results, you know, speak for themselves and the results are people are being killed on the streets. So that was a really difficult conversation. Yeah, it definitely was. And I'm sure it was even harder because you had to lead it. And I I just, I just want to say, I don't think, you know, our intent here is not to have some kind of weird secret agenda, but as John said, more to try and give you context of what the people that you interact with at work, home, etc., are going through and what's happening to them. And hopefully it gives you some lens of maybe a little bit of understanding. Obviously you're not in their shoes and you can't completely understand everything, but I think supporting those folks letting them know that they can talk to you if needed, just like you said in the dues section above is, is important. And, uh, I don't know that everybody has to agree on every single debate out there, but I think it's important that we can talk to each other about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and try and understand where each person in the conversation is coming from without being quick to, to make assumptions. Right. That's, that's what I got out of it, John, honestly, mm-hmm. yeah, because when we started, just like I said, I, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to talk to you about it. Honestly. Sure. Sure. And I think I'm still going to struggle with that, <laughs> even though we're good friends, mm-hmm. because like I said, I, I don't want to, don't want to pick the scab. No, I, I totally get it. You know, it's difficult it's difficult to offer emotional support too. Like that is, especially at a time when we're all under emotional stress to like take on the, the role of providing emotional support for somebody else is very, very difficult, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, but if we're not here for each other, then, then what are we doing? Right. Right. I think my boss said it the other day that, you know, everybody's emotional cup is like 75% full as soon as you wake up. Right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the Tough littlest times. thing just puts you over the more than you could bear line. Yeah. It was, it was a small thing for me. Like I went to drop off a package at the UPS store and like, as I was, I like pulled up and they were like boarding up the windows. Right. And I don't know why that, like push me over the edge, but I came back and I was so grumpy. Like, I was like, what is going on in this world that, you know, brings people to the point of needing to express their frustration to this degree, you know, that yeah, the business owners are fearful of their businesses, which is, I mean, that's totally legit, but you know, why do, you know, why have we driven people to, to this level of frustration? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> tough, tough discussion. Um, I, 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 I hope that it was easier to listen to than it was to, for us to record. 
<laughs> um, and I'm I hope kidding. it didn't. I hope it didn't come off as preachy. I hope it came off as you know me, Nick, and I, you know, offering up, you know, this context in in a, in a way to to offer support in rather than having to interrogate people that maybe don't have the the wherewithal to be interrogated about this right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I'll say is it didn't sound in any way like those times you got in this on the soapbox in episode nine, for example, <laughs> one of my favorite moments, by the way, <laughs> I was just a little jib to make you smile. <laughs> one thing I will say is John is one of the most inclusive dudes I know. And it seems like every time I talk to him about something, he he shows me a different way of thinking about something and that he's very capable of seeing something from another person's perspective. And I know that as you presented these things, it wasn't an attempt to like sway one person this way or that. It was just, here's the information that's out there. You can educate yourself. So just, right. if you're listening, just know that. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's a fault. I, I maybe, I over-intellectualize even like other people and their problematic attitudes when I, sh when I shouldn't give them a chance, but, uh, you know, it is the way that I am. So, you know, I, I hope that's not too big, too much of a problem, but, um, yeah. I think it's, uh, maybe time for us to get out of here. And again, um, thanks to all of the listeners for, um, for listening to me and to Nick. And I hope that, you know, you are um, in a good place emotionally and uh, I hope that you're getting the support that you need and uh, hopefully we can circle back and get back to our regularly scheduled discussions about career. There you go. Just a reminder, <laughs> we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey, and I just want to say that the things we talked about definitely are going to affect your career and the conversations you have, so keep that in mind. Awesome. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at B Journeyman, for Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. <laughs>